Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 4 to the end of the chapter. Thank you. We're actually going to be picking up on a passage that two weeks ago I uh, skipped part of that text because I wanted to include it in this message rather than that message just before Sunday because I think it's a better fit with what we're going to be talking about today. We're talking about an anchor for our soul. And rather than uh, read the text at the beginning because it's a little lengthy, I'm just going to refer to it as we go through the message. So if you would keep your Bibles open, we're going to walk through this, and I'd like to start with prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, you know we are looking at what has been a very difficult passage for the church uh, as they wrestled with it and how to understand it and how to apply it to life. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak through me this morning, that you'd guide us as we look at your word, and that you would make the applications that we need to hear. Thank you for it. Thank you for the warnings and the encouragements that we find in your word because we need both. And so we come to you humbly today asking for your spirit to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just before Christmas, some friends of ours uh, sent us a copy of a book as a thank you. We had supported them in their ministry, and so as kind of a thank you gift, they sent us this book, and it was entitled uh, Assured of Heaven, and the author of that book was Bob Ricker. Well, what our friends didn't know was that Bob's actually uh, related through marriage uh, to me, and uh, he's married to my first cousin. And Bob's been one of my heroes through the years. Some of you recognize that name. He was the pastor at Edina Baptist when that church really took off and grew. And uh, now it's known as Grace Church of Eden Prairie. Uh, Bob went on to pastor in California. He's had some amazing opportunities to be even an advisor or to meet with President Reagan when he was the President of the United States. Uh, He went on to be... Bob did, uh, went on to be the, pap, uh, the president of the Baptist General Conference. And so I've admired Bob and his ministry through the years and talked with him about different things, and I, but I had never read this book. And so here it was kind of a gift that was a very good timing from the Lord, too, because of the topic that it dealt with. What I didn't know until I started to read about Bob's early years was that he really struggled with doubt as a Christian. When he was growing up, I mean, here he is, his dad's a pastor, he's grown up in a Christian home, Uh, he's gone to Sunday school, church all his life, gone to Bible camps, done all the things that you should do, you know, going to youth group, mission trips, everything you could do, and yet he struggled with doubts. He would call himself a Thomas. And he came to realize in his ministry that he's not alone in that, that there are many people in the church who struggle with doubt as well. He would read the passages, you know, as a young young man about the unforgivable sin, and he'd wonder, have I committed that? You know, or he'd think through a passage like this one we're going to look at in Hebrews, where uh, if you come to know Christ, it seems, and you fall away, then it's impossible to renew you to repentance. Sounds to me like, you know, you can lose your salvation. And, and he would wrestle with those things. How do I know I'm a Christian? What if I'm not saved? What do I need to do? And how can I find assurance? 
And so really it was through those years of wrestling with doubts himself that he came to find the answers that he shares in his book, Assured of Heaven. And I'm going to be talking about some of those things today as we walk through this particular passage. It has been said that the role of a preacher is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Now think about that. And there's, there's real truth in that. That sometimes as a pastor, there are people who maybe think that they are okay when they really aren't. And they need to be prodded. And they need to be challenged. They need to be stretched and to consider where they are in their relationship with Christ. At the same time, in a congregation, an audience such as this, there are also people that are, just like Bob was, struggling with doubts. And they need comfort. They need assurance. Or they're struggling with hurts in their life. And they need to hear a word from God. And when you speak and you have both in the same group and you're trying to address both needs, it can be a challenge. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in to apply the truth of God's Word. But I think of the writer of Hebrews like a preacher and this message being like a sermon. And what we see him do in this passage is we will see that masterfully done by the writer of Hebrews in this passage. He gives the warning and it is strong and it's sober and he'll give the encouragement, and it is powerful, and there are promises that we can hold on to that will comfort and encourage us. So let's take a look. We're going to walk into this passage now. He begins in verse 4 with a sober warning, and let me read it for us. Verses 4 to 8. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Wow. Okay, what is this saying? Well, this particular passage is a warning against apostasy. And apostasy is a deliberate repudiation and abandonment of the faith that one has professed. It's this deliberate rejection of the gospel, of the person of Jesus Christ, of these things that an individual once professed. What makes this passage hard to interpret is that some of the terms are vague. And for 2,000 years, the church has been arguing over what it means and have not settled on one position as the correct or definitive position. That's what's interesting. I was reading one of the commentaries this past week, and this guy was talking about he's a theological professor. He went out to lunch with three other men who also are theological professors, and they each had a different view of this passage, four different views. And I'm going to share that with you today. Because there are four interpretations that are commonly given. And the question that each one of these views is trying to answer are things like, well, who is he speaking to? Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? 
Uh, why, why is it impossible to bring them back to repentance? And what is their judgment? What's the outcome of this? And the four views are this. The first view we'll call the actual view. It is a warning to Christians who can lose their salvation. That's the Arminian view. If you are familiar with those terms of Arminian and Calvinist kind of understandings of theology, this would be the Arminian view. And there are many churches, many believers who hold to that, that it is possible for a Christian to lose their salvation. So, pretty straightforward. Warnings to the church. Uh, you can lose your salvation and it is possible to so harden your heart that you cannot come back to Christ. Now, we don't see when that happens in a person's heart uh, necessarily to know when they have crossed that line where they could not be brought to repentance again, but according to this passage, it could happen. That's one understanding. Another understanding looks at this as a hypothetical warning. It is a warning to believers, but because they can't lose their salvation, it is hypothetical. Stern warning, but this would be uh, some in the Reform camp or Calvinists would hold this view because of their understanding of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. There's a warning here. We need to walk with Christ, but it's hypothetical because you really can't lose your salvation. The judgment that would come would be a judgment that you bore no fruit if you fell away from the Lord in that way. A third view is what is called the apparent view. And this would be where most of the reformers would uh, place themselves. It refers to professing Christians whose falling away shows that they were never saved in the first place. It's like the examples that are given there. It's like Judas, who was one of the disciples, who would have done everything all the other disciples did and would have looked like he was a follower of Christ, I mean, from the outside. And yet it became apparent in time because of his actions that he really did not love Christ. Or you can look at Demas, who went with Paul in his missionary journeys, and then later it says in the Scripture that Demas, having loved this present world, deserted him, abandoned him. You can see it also, Simon Magus, who in the book of Acts uh, professes a faith in Christ, then sees the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of Peter and the apostles, and he uh, wants that power, and he wants to buy that power with money. And that is when um, Paul looks at him, and, and when you see this man who has a wicked, evil heart that has not truly been converted. And this is where some like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, probably you know those names, are people who would hold to this view. And then the fourth view understands this as referring to rewards. It is a warning to believers, but what is lost is not salvation, but eternal reward. And that's based on verses 7 and 8 when it, he uses the illustration of land that either is productive or land that only produces thorns and thistles and is burned. And it's really an agricultural illustration. In fact, this used to be a farming practice in the States too where there would be times when farmers would burn up a stubble field or they'd burn up an area where there were a lot of thistles as a way to destroy that. 
what is burned is not the ground, but it's what is produced on the ground. And so they liken this passage to 1 Corinthians 3, where every believer is going to stand before the Lord and God's going to put a match to our works and either it's going to be wood, hay, and stubble or it's going to be gold and silver and precious stones. And that day will reveal it. So those are four views. Um, my particular uh, understanding of this, I would hold more to the third one, the apparent that it refers to professing Christians whose falling away shows that they were never saved in the first place. But I also think there's some merit to this understanding of it being rewards, that that is what is lost. And so it's just a difficult text. And we all bring a theological bias, if we will, to the text that affects how we understand it. If you're more comfortable as an Arminian, you're going to understand it one way. If you're more in the Calvinist camp, you're going to go another way. What's interesting is that when Bob Ricker was serving in his first pastorate, it was a small Baptist church. It was a church where terms like eternal security and once saved, always saved were common phrases that were used in that church. And yet when he was teaching the adult class and he asked them this question, he asked how many believed in eternal security, about half the hands in the class went up. When he asked them how many of you think that it's possible to lose your salvation, the other half went up. And so here it was even in that group where they weren't sure. Now sometimes that can be such a divisive issue that churches have split over that. Now, we have people in our church who would hold to both views in the Evangelical Free Church. We don't take a stand on that in terms of our uh, doctrinal statement. We leave that as an open question for Christians to sort through. But maybe this is a bit of encouragement in that. Do you know that both really want the same thing? Even though our views and our understanding of that text may be different, what we want is the same. We want people to be genuinely saved and walk with God all their life. And let me give you an illustration of that. Say there's a man who um, goes and he goes to a church and he's coming out of an immoral lifestyle and he goes to this church that believes that it is possible for a Christian to lose their salvation. And he goes to that church and he's converted and he uh, shows evidence of growth and then after a couple years he falls back into his old immoral lifestyle and he leaves the church. Well, in that church, what they would think is that this person had lost their salvation and needed to be saved again. Now, say that same individual had gone to a church that believed in eternal security. And he, you know, comes and he makes a profession of faith and he evidences what looks like change in his life and yet two years later, you know, he goes back into his old lifestyle and going to his old immoral ways. What's that church going to think? Well, that church is going to think that he was never genuinely saved and he needs to be saved. He needs to come to know Christ. I mean, both want the same thing. We want people to walk with God all their life. But what made this passage especially an important topic in the early church was persecution. And that's where the writer of Hebrews is coming from. They debated the question, can a person who denies Christ in order to avoid persecution ever be restored to Christ in the church? And some said yes, and some said no. 
Now that takes it to a different level, doesn't it? Can a person who denies Christ just to avoid persecution ever be restored to fellowship with Christ and His church? That's what they were wrestling about. That's why the writer of Hebrews will say toward the end of the book that you you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. He affirms them because they were willing to see the confiscation of their property. They were willing to let that be taken away by those who were persecuting them. But it had not yet come to that point where some of them were going to literally die for their faith in Christ. And that's the question here. Is it ever right to deny Christ? No. Even to the point of death? Yes. Even to the point of death as a martyr, we are to hold on to Jesus Christ. Could they ever be restored? I mean, it was a divisive issue in the church when some said yes, some said no. In time, the church came to the position that only if there was a public confession of sin that what they did was wrong and that there was a genuine change of life could they be restored. But it was difficult. It was like, for some, it'd be like taking a traitor back into your fellowship. I mean, that's, that's how they were looking at this. And that's really tough. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do with this passage? It is a strong warning to never deny Christ, to hold on to Him, and to understand that when someone falls away from the Lord, even though we don't see what's going on in their heart, that there can be a line that people cross where they become so hardened that they will never come back to Christ and their salvation will be lost. Wow. Well, now you can see why I didn't want to put that right before Christmas, in one sense, (laughs) as the ending of the message, and instead wanted to include it in this one because what the writer of Hebrews does here is he makes this dramatic change right here in the text. He goes from this sober warning to a word of encouragement, and it is a strong encouragement. And look at verses 9 to 12. He writes to them, and he said, even though we speak like this, dear friends, there's there's this change in tone already. Uh, He's calling them dear friends. He's calling them beloved. And he says, we are confident of better things in your case. Confident. I mean, it's a strong word. I believe in you. I believe in better things in your case. And what are those things? Things that accompany salvation. I believe that you are saved, and when that day comes, you will stand firm. And why does he think that? It is based upon the justice of God. God is not unjust. He sees our trials. He sees our afflictions. And He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. He's looking at their life. They have this evidence of faith. They have worked. They have served. They have, uh, under persecution that they have experienced so far, they have stood firm. They've stood the test. All of these things are going on. And so He believes in them. And based on that assurance, he calls them to be diligent in their faith to the very end. 
What gives them that confidence? It is the justice of God and the evidence of faith in their life. That's powerful. And that's where those words then come in and these exhortations to be diligent in their faith, to make their hope sure. We don't want you to become lazy. I mean, don't be lazy about your faith, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. That's where he wants us to live. And it would become a very present reality for them in just a few years. Do you remember the story of Polycarp? Polycarp was a senior pastor of a church in Smyrna. That's one of the seven churches that are written about in the book of Revelation. It's in Asia or in modern Turkey. And he lived in the early second century. He was discipled by the apostle John. He was one of those last contacts with the apostles. And he wrote on this text in Hebrews, urging believers to remain true to Christ even to the point of death. He said, I therefore exhort you to carry out the word of righteousness and to practice endurance to the limit, an endurance of which you have had an object lesson, not only in those blessed persons, Ignatius, Zosimus, and Rufus, but also in the members of your own community as well as in Paul himself and the other apostles. And commentators pointed out what Ignatius, Zosimus, and Rufus shared in common was the experience of martyrdom. He's writing to his church in Smyrna, stand firm, be true to Christ. Well, what happened is that Polycarp appears to have been in his 90s when persecution broke out in Smyrna. When it became evident that a Roman festival would become an occasion for the severe harassment of Christians, a majority in the church persuaded their aged pastor to retire to a farm outside the city. And there in the company of a few friends, he spent his time in prayer. Christians in Smyrna were arrested, brought before the Roman proconsul, who sought to persuade them to take the oath of allegiance to the emperor, acknowledging Caesar as Lord, and then to offer a pagan sacrifice. A man named Quintus was remembered because he played the coward, and he complied. But most of the Christians from Smyrna remained true to Christ. They were scourged, they were burned alive, they were tortured on the rack, they were torn by wild beasts. And after a few days of this public spectacle, the crowds in the arena became restless and called for a search to be made for Polycarp. I mean, it's just horrific what is being done here and that this mob of people would call for the death of this aged good man. Polycarp was moved to another farm but could not remain hidden. A young slave revealed under torture where he could be found. And the police captain went, arrested him, and brought him before the proconsul. And God was speaking to his spirit and said, Play the man, Polycarp. Be strong. The proconsul had never seen Polycarp previously. And when this venerable old man stood before him, he was deeply moved. He urged the old pastor to respect his age and pressed him to take the oath, swearing by the genius of Caesar. Take the oath and I will let you go. Revile Christ and you will be free. And Polycarp replied without hesitation, For 86 years I have been his servant and he has never wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
When every effort at dissuasion had failed, the proconsul sent his herald to the arena to announce three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. It was decreed that Polycarp should be burned alive, and his body was bound and consigned to the flames. How horrific, how awful what was going on in that time in history. And yet every day, still, there are Christians around the world who are being put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. It is one of those sober realities. It is shocking to hear. But even if you take the case of the shooting that took place in Oregon last October, where this deranged gunman went into the, you know, the community college there in Oregon, the question that he asked those who were in that classroom is, are you a Christian? And if they said yes, he shot and killed them. If they were not a Christian, as the story was told, he would shoot them in the leg or he'd shoot them in some other part of the body. But if they were a Christian, he shot them in the head. It was horrific. And here were these young college students. Can you imagine? I mean, if he's going down the line doing this and you're the third or the fourth person, what would you say? Would you say you're a Christian? You're going to lie? You're going to say you're not just to get out of that or a situation? What would you do? What the writer of Hebrews is doing is saying that it is far better to hold on to Christ and not to deny Him than it is to risk losing your salvation. That's a hard, hard word. But it is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And he believed in them. He believed that they would stand firm to the end. He pointed them to these examples of other Christians who had laid down their life for Christ. And then thirdly, he tells us of a sure and certain hope that we have in Christ. We see it in verses 13 to the end of the chapter. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. And he said, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. And God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. And he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We have a sure and certain hope. What is it that gives us confidence and assurance of our salvation? We find it in the promises and character of God. And he points to Abraham as an example of that faith and patience. When you think about the story of Abraham, I mean, Abraham called him, God called him out of a pagan background when he was 75 years old. And he gave Abraham this promise that he would make of him a great nation. 
He would make his name great, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was a promise of the Messiah who would come through his line in time and history. But Abraham is living 75 years old, and he has no child. What do you mean you're going to make of me a great nation? God would appear to him again and repeat his promise. Abraham, if you can count the stars in the sky above, that's how many your descendants will be. Abraham, if you can count the sand on the seashore, that's how many your children are going to be. And yet Abraham waited and waited and waited. It would be 25 years of waiting before Isaac was born. Abraham's now 100 years old. He is, he's getting up there in years to have a child. And then when Isaac was born, this child of laughter, this amazing miracle birth, if you will, Isaac would grow up. They would love him. They would care for him in those early years. And then came that day when he was probably a teenager. When Abraham was asked to take his son, his only son, and offer him up as a sacrifice. Can you imagine the thoughts that went through Abraham's mind? I mean, why God? God, are you sure about this? I mean, did I hear you correctly? What about your promises to make of me a great nation? And it was through my children and Isaac's all I've got. It doesn't say in the text that Abraham wrestled with any of that. What it does say is that Abraham believed that God would provide a lamb for the sacrifice. That God that Abraham believed that God was able to even raise the dead if that's what it came to. And because of Abraham's faith and obedience, God did something extraordinary. God swore an oath to Abraham. And in that oath, he said this. He said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make you Make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. God did provide a lamb. God stayed his hand. And it is through Isaac that that seed would come. And the writer of Hebrews says that we are to follow Abraham's example. That we are to trust the Lord even when we don't see or understand what he is doing. That we're to trust the Lord even in those times when our faith may be tested to the point of death. That we are to trust Him and hold on to His promises because His Word is true. Why did God swear an oath? I mean, God didn't have to do that. I mean, He, he didn't do that. Men take an oath because of our sinfulness. We are asked to swear an oath with consequences or penalties if we lie because people lie. And God didn't need to do it. His word is already true. God spoke in a way that we would understand to give us a double assurance of His promise. Since He could swear by no one greater, He swore by Himself. And he gave us two unchangeable things that we can hold on to. One is his promise that his word is true, that God does not lie. And the second is his oath. It's his guarantee. So he's the one making the promise and he's the one guaranteeing that the promise is true. 
And you think about that for us as Christians. What is our assurance of salvation based upon? It's based upon his promises, like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's based upon promises like Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And he's given us his oath, and Jesus would make these statements that truly, truly, I say to you, and he'd promise that all who come to me, I will never drive away. That those who come to me, I will never cast out. In John 6.40, he said, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So the question is, if you are a person who wrestles with doubts, what do you hold on to? We hold on to the promise of God's Word. If you struggle with questions like, have I ever committed the unforgivable sin? That's a good indication that you never have. Because a person who has committed that would not even be concerned about repentance or about their sin or about turning back to Christ. In fact, Bob would write in his book a very interesting, simple statement. And he would say to people, do you want to be saved? Well, then you can Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is as simple and gracious as that. That if you want to be saved, if you want to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can. Turn to Him. Ask Him to forgive your sins and come into your heart and He will be your Savior and Lord. The writer of Hebrews ends with this assurance. He tells us that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And in those days of sailing in the Mediterranean, an anchor was a very important thing for a ship to have. But our anchor is not in the ocean floor. Our anchor is in heaven itself. That that anchor has been taken into the most holy place in heaven. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain in heaven, if you will where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf and he has become our great high priest. What is our anchor? Our anchor is Jesus who has gone before us into the very presence of God. And as long as we are connected to him, our salvation is secure. Our anchor is Jesus who has gone before us. And it is in Christ that we find the strength to weather the storms of life and the trials or persecutions or things that may come. And it is in Christ that we find the assurance of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, as we think about our relationship with you today, I pray for those who may be in our church who have wrestled with doubt that they would find in this word comfort and assurance that your word is true and that as long as we are holding on to Jesus, he's holding on to us. And Father, I pray that you would um, do a work of comfort by your Holy Spirit in the hearts of each one who may be wrestling with those kind of questions. 
And thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for your oath that all who come to you, you will not cast out. And thank you that even when we may waver in unbelief or we may struggle with sin in our life, that you are there to lift us up and carry us and hold on to us. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs>